Looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, let's get the text before us. You open your Bible to that place, and I will read from verse 4 to verse 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, you may wonder why I have established the limits of this section to span verses 4 to 8. So if you try to fathom the method to my madness, what suggestions do you have as to why I have chosen those outer limits, we might say? You'll notice the repeated phrase, him who is, who was, and who is to come, is duplicated in verse 4 and verse 8. And what could we call that? Bookmark? Sandwich? Sandwich? Bookmark? Mm. And inclusio, that is correct. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I'm not dogmatic about the inclusio feature, but you notice that there is a bracket or frame around this section, an envelope, if you will. And it is important to observe this pattern or this structural pattern, for some will stop this unit at verse 7. I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake not to coordinate verse 8 with verses 4 through 7 to make those five verses a unit in and of themselves. Now, put yourself inside the envelope. Put yourself inside the include. Include yourself in. Include or envelop yourself, your life, your soul, you yourself framed, sandwiched, enveloped between him who is and who was and who is to come, your life, your soul, enclosed between the Almighty, the Omnipotent Alpha and Omega, the everlasting God who is ever the I am that I am to you, as he is to all those gathered before him in heavenly glory at this instant. And then notice the riches folded into this inclusio, treasures for your soul, your life and the soul of those in heavenly glory granted grace and peace 
the love of God the Son, his precious blood, which releases you from the judgment and curse your sins deserve. You are being made a priest unto God in his kingdom with open access to his eternal throne room. You come into the Alpha and Omega in the text here as he folds your story into his eternity. He folds your story into his magnificent, glorious, never-ending eternity. Your life is sandwiched in the person who is and who was and who is to come, even as that person's gifts and treasures are poured out upon and into you, time present, time past, and time future. Put yourself into the inclusio. Your life is hidden with the Son of God here in this passage. Now, there is another way of structuring this unit. It could be called an anaphora. A-N-A-P-H-O-R-A. Do any of you remember what an anaphora was? We've seen them before in the biblical patterns, but it's been a while since we've talked about them. Marge, do you remember? Very good. It's a a statement or a series of words or just one word that inaugurates a section. It's a signal that the writer has begun a new unit. So if we were going to say there's an anaphora here, what would you say is the phrase or the word that indicates there's an anaphora, if there is one? All right, John. Yes, John. And if you notice verse 9, I, John, or the name John is repeated. So we could say that verses 4 to 8 are an anaphora because the name John begins the section and verses 9 through 17, or 9 through 20 rather, are another anaphora because the name John inaugurates that section. And we also notice the name John in verse 2. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, in verse 1, uh, which begins, which is the verse that begins that unit. So we notice this interesting pattern of the Apostle John's name occurring three times in this opening chapter, underscoring his authorship of the Revelation and also underscoring his own uh, narrative behind that Revelation, his own apostolic story, which lays in the background to this self-disclosure that God has given of the past, present, and future. Now, I'm not dogmatic about the anaphora, but I'm not as persuaded of the anaphora as I am of the inclusio. But in either case, whether it is an anaphora or an inclusio, the prominence of the name of the apostle is significant here, and it is significant, as we indicated in our first lecture in this series, because of the of the narrative characterization of the apostle himself and his testimony, which is in the background of the testimony of this revelation. All right, now let's let's talk a little bit about the pattern or form of this section and make a little outline of the pattern that is here, beginning with the author. And the author, of course, is 
John the Apostle named in verse 4? What about the recipients or the addressees of this revelation? Who are they? They are the seven churches. They are named as seven here. They are listed in verse 11, you will notice. And where else do we find the seven seven churches? Marge? Chapters 2 and 3. And we will notice when we get there that they follow the same order in the canonical listing, that is the chapters 2 and 3 unfolding, as they are listed here in verse 11 in chapter 1. Now, the next element to notice in in this uh, five-verse unit is the salutation. What do I mean by the salutation? Greeting. Mm -hmm. The greeting. What is it? Grace to you and peace. Yes, grace to you and peace. A rather standard apostolic greeting. It's common to the apostles uh, other than John. It's common to Paul occurs most frequently in Paul because most frequent letters are Paul's letters, but it also occurs in Peter's letters, both first and second Peter also includes this apostolic greeting or salutation. Now from whom is this address or from whom is this revelation coming? From whom is this salutation or greeting coming? Anyone else? From the seventh spirit. Anyone else? From Jesus Christ, yes. Notice the three froms. From him who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ. This is a triune sending. This is a sending by the triune God. We could say that the uh, divine reference in verse 4 is that is to that of God the Father. In verse 6, he is distinguished from the Son. So here we could uh, assign uh, him to that first uh, from, the second from, the seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit in its fullness. I'll make a comment further uh, along uh, today on that uh, assignation. And finally, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the third. So the threefold from is a threefold reference to the persons of the Trinity who are involved in disclosing this revelation and sending forth this information to the seven churches. Then the next element, which is part of the pattern of these verses, next element is a doxology. How do we get a doxology out of this unit? Well, the Greek word doxa appears in this uh, section. And what do you think that Greek word would be in English? Glory. glory. Very good, yes. You see in verse 6, the word glory, which is doxa, from which we get the English word doxology, <clears throat> So you'll notice that we have a twofold doxology. To him who loves us, to him be glory and dominion forever. 
followed by an amen. This doxology is a reflection on the present glory work of Christ, and we'll come back to enlarge upon that. You'll notice that it is looking at what Christ is doing in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church, in the present time. He loves us, released us from our sins by his buds, made us to be a kingdom of priests, etc. <clears throat> to him be the glory. Amen. And the amen closes that doxological declaration. But we have another amen. We have an amen at the end of verse 7. Now this verse is not a doxological statement. This verse is an apocalyptic statement, definitively apocalyptic with an amen again because it's referring to the parousia or to the future glory work of Christ. So the doxological section is referring to the present glory work of Christ and verse 7, the apocalyptic followed by the amen is referring to the future glory work of Christ. And we'll expand upon that in a moment. And you'll notice that they are both <coughs> staccato-like concluded with that emphatic amen. May it be so. Let it be so. Finally, we have a repetition of the senders in verse 8. But notice that what was present in verse 4, in verse 8, is repeated. It's the triune God, but it's expanded. The expansion includes not only the duplication, but an amplification, a duplication of verse 4 with an amplification of verse 4. How so? Notice the I am. In Greek, that would be ego eimi. I am. It's a favorite Johannine declaration. It's a favorite Johannine identification. It is the name of God in Exodus 3. I am. But in John's Gospel, it is emphatically referring to Christ himself, the human nature of the Son of God, the I am that I am in human flesh. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. The I am's are are repeated over and over again in John's gospel. And so we are not surprised to see the ego me, the I am here referring to Christ again. He amplifies uh, further by saying that the I am is the Alpha and the Omega. What is Alpha and Omega? Yes, they are the first and last beginning and ending letters of the Greek alphabet. The Alpha is first, the Omega is last, and this section is repeated. If you have your cross-reference Bible in chapter 21, verse 6, and chapter 22, verse 13, so there's a common... Uh, reference to the identity of the Son of God at the beginning and end of this revelation. And finally, the word Almighty, the Omnipotent One, the All-Powerful One. So though we have a recursive duplication which frames this unit, we have in the final appearance of this uh, of this identification of the triune God an amplification or enlargement upon him, which brings other uh, aspects of his wonderful being and power and glory to mind.
All right, summing up then, this uh, unit in terms of its form, its outline, its inclusio feature or envelope feature. At the inception of this unit, verse 4, an apocalyptic person is self-disclosed by revelation. That is, he reveals himself. I could say apocalyptic persons because I don't mean to diminish the Trinitarian individuality here as well as their essential unity. The personal triune God speaks of present and future aspects of his glorious kingdom and appearing at the beginning of this dramatic pericope. Then at the conclusion of this unit, verse 8, an apocalyptic person or apocalyptic persons self-disclose themselves in revelation. At the conclusion of this unit, the personal triune God speaks once more in symmetrical, inclusive, and recursive style of present and future aspects of his glorious kingdom appearing at the end of this dramatic pericope. In other words, the theme of this entire book is stated in envelope style here, envelope style of who is the revealer, him who is, who was, who is to come, and in his triune being, him who is the Father and the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit in its fullness, and the Son of God who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God the Father. (laughs) This triune uh, declaration or revelation or disclosure is an emphatic underscoring of the essential Christian doctrine of the Trinity. There is no Christianity without it. Christianity becomes another form of paganism if the Trinity is not held and upheld and defended. Here it is embedded in the book of Revelation at the outset of the, of the uh, disclosure of God himself to his people. All right, the dramatic salutation, doxological amen, apocalyptic amen, declaration of the Lord God omnipotent testifies that this greeting, this salutation, this praise, this apocalyptic prophecy, this divine self-description, all this language pulses with the drama, the vitality, divine power of the triune God's tripersonal being, the wonder of his divine arena, and the divine acts by which he enters into redemptive history. The revealer, the apocalyptic actor in this drama, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in the fullness of their being, the fullness of their person, their actions, and their eschatological heaven. Now, the beginning of the drama. Now, the beginning of the drama of the revelation of God's being, his eschaton, his acts in history, begins with John. It begins with John and the seven churches of Asia. But why these seven churches listed in verse 11 and described in verses chapters 2 and 3? Why these seven churches? Very good. Undoubtedly, John was familiar with them, and they were known to him. 
They knew him, and he knew them. Perhaps because he itinerated amongst them when he was pastor of the church at Ephesus, where this discussion begins. Notice that Ephesus is first on the list, and it is first in chapter 2. But there were other churches in Asia Minor. Not listed here. You know one right off the top of your head. What is it? Colossians. Good for you. Colossae. You haven't forgotten everything. Alright, so Colossae is another one. And what other church is there which was in the Lycus River Valley? One on this list is in the Lycus River Valley. Which one on this list in verse 11 is in the Lycus River Valley? Laodicea. So we have Colossae and Laodicea, and there was a third church in that valley, wasn't there? Hierapolis. Hierapolis. So Hierapolis and Colossae are not on this list of the churches in Asia Minor. What else is not on this list? What other church to which the Apostle Paul wrote is not on this list? Galatia. Yes. Now, there's a great argument about whether the epistle to Galatia is a circular letter or whether it was to one congregation in Galatia. And that brings up the whole theory of the north and southern Galatian sections of Asia Minor. That's all to the side. There was at least one church in Galatia. There may have been many churches in Galatia, more than that one. It may have been a circular letter. We'll not argue the point plus or minus. We just recognize that Galatia is not on this list. So here we have these seven churches plus at least three more. So there are at least ten known churches in Asia Minor from the New Testament and perhaps one more than ten, an eleventh at Troas. Troas, Acts 16 and Acts 20. Why Troas? What happened at Troas? Well, Paul is obviously there. Troas was a jumping off point for the Apostle Paul. Where was he jumping off to? He receives a vision there. Macedonian call to come over to Macedonia. So he crosses over into Europe from Troas. And then, excuse me, in Acts 20, he returns to Troas and he spends seven days there. And likely spent seven days because there was a Christian community there. So, we have potentially 11 identifiable Christian congregations or locations of Christians in 11 cities and villages of Asia Minor, and that doesn't exhaust the the options and possibilities. Archaeology has determined that there were many more. How How old they are is hard to determine, but from the second century on, there are remains, cemeteries and mosaics, etc., of others. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> now we've already noted the threefold froms in verses four and five as a distinguishing Trinitarian or threefold personal <clears throat> description of the eternal and triune God. Now that phrase, the seven spirits. You may have wondered how I get the fullness of the Holy Spirit out of seven spirits before the throne. Because the number seven 
is a symbolic number of completeness and perfection and fullness. So here in a chapter in which the number seven is going to be replete, particularly in verses uh, nine through 20, number seven is going to represent another kind of fullness. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is included in this number in verse four. Many commentators take that approach to it, and I'm happy to follow particularly William Hendrickson and his interpretation of the meaning of seven there. All right, now, we remind ourselves that the confessional formula of self-description. What do I mean by the confessional formula of self-description? It's that phrase, him who is and who was and who is to come. That is a confessional statement. It describes the eternal nature of the being and persons of the Godhead. Eternal as without time. No time in the eternal being of God. He has no time. He is not subject to time and sequence. All things are immediately present time to him. This is very difficult for us to imagine, but nonetheless, it is certainly worth pondering. Think about eternal Timelessness. Eternal timelessness. Forever, everlastingly, without time and outside of time. Which also means that he is without origin apart from himself. And without demise. For if he is eternal... He has no time beginning. And if he is eternal, he has no time ending. The triune God has no birthday and he will have no funeral. He is everlasting. He is ever present. Purely, absolutely, metaphysically self-existent. And that without beginning or end. He acts in time, but he himself is timeless. He acts in time, but he is outside of time, which means that when he acts, he comes into time. And when he acts, he comes into a dimension that he's created. He's created time. So, he must be more powerful and more and superior to it. He is eternal, never ending in existence of being and trinity of persons. As we ponder these observations, we are amazed, but our faith bows in honor and homage to the truth of it, the mystery and the wonder of it, which surpasses our time-bound knowledge. We are finite creatures. We are finite, time-bound creatures, made. We are not infinite 
and uncreated, as God himself is. It is therefore very difficult for us to imagine that kind of existence and dimension. There is nothing wrong with us speculating on it or contemplating of it, meditating it, nothing wrong with that. But we will realize that our finite intelligence will not be able to comprehend it, will not be able to get our hands around it. We won't be able to wrap it up in our understanding. Why? Because the finite cannot understand completely and comprehensibly the infinite. It's the nature of the case. As a creature, we won't get it because we're not God. And he's allowed to be timeless, eternal, and God outside of time, apart from our understanding how it can be. Because he is Lord and we are his humble servants. Even in heaven, we will still be finite creatures, though glorified. We will not be infinite God. So our confession is naturally followed by our doxology. To him who is and who was and who is to come, all glory and power to the being and triune person of the eternal everlasting God forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. We want now to focus on verse 5. And we want to begin our examination of this verse with that phrase, faithful witness, which is used here of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word for witness, which is a noun here, is a cognate of the Greek word for bore witness, which is a verb in verse 2. Now here, in verse 5, the word witness is referring to Jesus Christ. In verse 2, the verb, bore witness, is referring to the Apostle John. The witness of Christ and the witness of John, Greek cognates or Greek similar Word forms. What do we have here? With this duplication of the same word form in the Greek text. We have a mirror reflection. The witness of the apostle, a reflection of the witness of the Son of God. That is to stay the story of John's witness which is contained in his gospel, the fourth gospel of the New Testament. The story of John's witness is a mirror reflection of the witness of the Son of God to his own story. He's recording Christ's witness to his own story, even as his story, that is John's story, is drawn into that narrative. The witness of the Son mirrored in the witness of the Apostle. The witness of the Apostle reflecting the witness of the Son. And the first feature of this reciprocal and mutual witness is everlasting life. That is, life as eternal 
when received as a divine gift of God, of grace, life as eternal as the eternal life of the triune Godhead. Now there's a wonder, is it not? That the witness of the Son is to everlasting life, God so loved the world that he gave. And that the witness of the Apostle is duplicated with the witness of the Son, that he records that witness. Life, when received as a gift of grace, which is as everlasting from that point of reception as the everlasting life of the triune Godhead. That the triune God would draw you in to the everlasting character of his own everlasting life. From the time in which he gifts it to you, from the time in which he grants it to you, from the time he graciously bestows it upon you, you have entered in to that point forward to the ever-ending, everlasting, never-ending, forever and ever life of the eternal Godhead. No, you haven't become part of God, but you've received one of the gifts of God. And one of his gifts is to give you the same life from the time you receive it that he has. Everlasting, never-ending, ceaseless. Ponder that for a moment. Can you imagine a gift any greater than that? That you would be drawn into sharing the eternal life of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the time it is granted to you, it belongs to you as an everlasting benefit of his grace, mercy, love, and truth. Well, John is the one, more than any of the other writing disciples, apostles, John is the one who lays this out most clearly. And that is the reason that the Gospel of John has been so viciously attacked down through the centuries by the heretics who want to reduce Jesus to a mere man. Make him in modern day terms a social activist or a social justice warrior. You reduce him to a mere man. That's what those who do not understand John's penetration into this mutual revelation, this reflex mirror. As if John's saying, what I saw and heard from him and from his lips, I write to you that you may know that you have everlasting life in him who claimed to be the source of that everlasting life to you. Don't patronize Jesus of Nazareth with this nonsense about being a good person if he is not at the same time very God of very God. It is nonsense because if he isn't very God of very God, he's the greatest liar the world has ever seen. Content your faith and lay your hope to rest upon 
this God-man, this Son of God become flesh, so that you who are flesh may become sons and daughters of God. All right, we'll take a pause and break at that point. Now, I want to reinforce a little more what we've said about that reflective mirror witness of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Apostle John. Notice what Christ, the Son of God, declares in John 5:39. This is the witness, even as that witness of the Old Testament Scriptures indicates that we may have eternal life. Jesus testifying that even the Old Testament passages declare eternal life for the people of God. And now compare that, that declaration of Jesus in John 5.39 with what John the Apostle declares in 1 John 1.2. We bear witness and proclaim to you eternal life. Here's this reciprocal witness of the Son of God and the Apostle. The narrative revelation of the Son of God mirrored in the narrative revelation of the apostolic servant of God. Now add to these the witness of the Son of God in John 3.36. This is what that passage says. His witness is true, and that witness is that whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Notice the present tense there. Has present possession, eternal life, as soon as it has been received through faith. Now, that lines up with 1 John 5.11, where there is a reciprocal passage which indicates the witness is this. God has given us eternal life in his Son. There's an emphatic underscoring of the gift character of eternal life, gracious character of eternal life. It is a gift. It has been given to us in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. The narrative, I haven't exhausted this uh, pattern, the witness of the apostle and the witness of Christ himself, but I've given you enough of a flavor, particularly on this point of the everlasting life or the eternal life of the eternal Godhead. So the narrative story of the apostle John's life reflects the narrative story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Eternal life received by the one is a mirror of eternal life possessed and given by the other. John, drawn in to the drama of the life character, the eternal life character of the Son of God himself, Jesus the Christ in the flesh. And not even death can annul this witness. Not even death can annul this gift. If Jesus, as the Son of God, possesses life eternal, then death and the grave cannot hold him. The witness of the empty tomb is that Jesus of Nazareth is the firstborn of the dead. The Greek word here is prototakos, a favorite of the Apostle Paul, as you should know from our study of the epistle to the Colossians. The narrative fact that Christ is risen is the seal and testimony that his story is one of life, not death. His story is one of heaven, not hell. His story is a life of a resurrection body, not a putrefying corpse. And his story is John's story. His story is the story of the people of God since the hour of the crucifixion 
and resurrection. This is the story which is revealed in the panels and tapestries of the book of Revelation. It is the story of life and the narrative drama of Christ Jesus witnessed by and in the narrative drama and the life of God's elect people. The people of God between the advents, the interadventual story of the people of God both now and forevermore is bound up in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The mirror reflection folds us into the drama. And that's the reason the book of Revelation speaks as clearly to us as it did to that first century Christian church. Seven of them and beyond. But more than this, he loves us. He loves us as we are suspended between death and eternal life. In this interadventual era, we are suspended between death and eternal life. Even as his father loved him and raised him from death to eternal life, so that love of God embraces all his elect people in every age and joins them with the resurrection of Christ, which is life eternal in him. He loves us as we are suspended between the guilt of sin and eternal damnation. Even as his father loved him and released him from the sins which he bore vicariously, declaring him not guilty of eternal damnation so that they so that the love of God embraces all his elect people in every age joining them with the release of their sins in Christ and declaring them not guilty in Christ's justification by his resurrection no charge of guilt and damnation against the son of God he has endured and satisfied it all He's cleansed it, erased it, blotted it out. No charge of guilt and damnation against those united to the Son of God. Their endurance and satisfaction has been fulfilled completely in their loving Savior. He loved us so much that he bore the damnation that we deserve and the guilt and punishment that we should have had. He loves us and makes us, draws us, grants us a kingdom. Notice the concatenation. Notice the chain of linkages here in 5 and 6. He grants us his kingdom. What is his kingdom? His kingdom is not of this world. That's what he said. He grants us this kingdom of the world to which he belongs. The kingdom of an eternal world. The kingdom of an everlasting world. The kingdom of an invisible spiritual world, a kingdom of a heavenly world. Indeed, the kingdom that he announced, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He displayed that kingdom. Jesus displayed that kingdom in the self-revelation of his incarnation. A kingdom of grace. No merits or works qualify for membership in this kingdom. This kingdom is an unmerited favor, and membership is by the grace of God in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, alone, exclamation point. A kingdom of rich and lavish abundance, the abundance of the wedding at Cana, the abundance of the feeding of the 5,000, the abundance of blind eyes opened and lame limbs healed. How many abundant, how many did he heal? And open their eyes. The abundance of resurrection life for Jairus' daughter and the widow's son. 
and his own dear friend Lazarus, the abundance of life out of the grave. There is the kingdom in which we have been made joint heirs with the king himself. There is the kingdom in preview in the miraculous work, the miracle signs, as John's gospel calls them, the sign miracles of the presence and nature of the kingdom of God, not of this world, but of an invisible supernatural world where Christ is king of kings and his sons and daughters gather around his royal throne in perfect peace and health and life in abundance. When he was doing those miracles, he was giving you a preview of what the kingdom of heaven is like. There's no death in that kingdom. Lazarus is alive. There are no demons in that kingdom. They're cast out by his power. There's no sickness in that kingdom. The sick are made well. And there's a lavish abundance in that kingdom. There's more wine than you can taste at Cana. There's more bread than you can eat on that mountain slope. You see what he's showing you in those miracles he performs. He's not just giving you magic powers. He's demonstrating what his kingdom is like. That invisible, spiritual, everlasting, almighty kingdom. And then to seal it, he tells parables about what it's like. So he tells you about it in the parables. He shows you about it in the miracles. And all of that is of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's his refrain. And here, back to our text, he loves us and makes us priests to his God and Father. The kingdom and priests. Here is a spiritual privilege, visibly vested formerly in Old Testament priests. A special position between God and man. A special access to God at a tabernacle or a temple. A special role as agents of sacrifice, atonement. And forgiveness. But now, because Christ has exercised the office of the eschatological priest, we share that priestly role which he has performed and fulfilled. We are brought near unto God as priests in his priesthood. We have access to his God and Father in his access to his God and Father. We participate in the sacrifice of the eschatological priest as he is sacrificed. We benefit from and are atoned for by his perfect atonement. We are forgiven of every stain and blemish in his high priestly forgiveness. The priesthood of all believers is the eschatological priesthood of the Son of God, incarnate and glorified, and all believers united to that once and for all priest and priesthood forever. You don't need an earthly priest. You've got a heavenly one who exceeds everyone, Vatican City or any other place. He's the priest that makes you part of a royal priesthood. No other, no earthly cap and gown cleric can do that. This love, this blood, this release from sin, this kingdom, this priesthood, this Christ, this Son of the Father, this Father of the Son, this is worthy of glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Amen to this semi-eschatological love, now and not yet. Amen to this semi-eschatological blood, efficacious now and not yet. Amen to this semi-eschatological release from sin, now and not yet. Amen to this semi-eschatological kingdom, now and not yet. Amen to this semi-eschatological priesthood, now and not yet. Amen to this semi-eschatological heaven, present now and not yet, through the elect church of the triune Lord God. At verse 7, we move from the present semi-eschatological to the future consummate eschatological. You must remember as you read this book that these are the two poles between which the whole book of Revelation reverberates, echoing and re-echoing from present semi-eschatological drama to future consummate eschatological drama as the interadventual era unfolds. What is going on in this narrative, in these tapestries, in these panels, in these symbolic pictures, what is going on is a reflection of what is always going on in the interadventual age. What is present now for the elect of God and what is present even now for the future of the elect of God, even as those glorified saints are experiencing it at this very instant. Those are the two poles between which this book moves back and forth. Verse 7 presupposes the one pole of that interadventual era, the first coming of the Son of God. He has come and he is coming again. The second advent will not be confined to Bethlehem of Judea and the Palestinian literal. The second advent will be cosmic. It will be universal. Every eye in the cosmos, the world, will see him come again. You ask me how that is possible? I don't know how it is possible given my finite understanding, but I know that the Bible says so. It is possible. It will happen. That is coming again with the clouds. Every eye in the universe will behold him, even those who pierced him, Jew and Gentile alike, whether they nailed him, speared him, railed at him, even their eyes will see him coming. And all the nations and tribes of the earth will mourn at his appearing. They will mourn not for their sins and repentant sorrow, but they will mourn and lament for their sins from which they never repented. Mourn that he whom they rejected, despised, and blasphemed, he has come to execute judgment once and for all. That will cause them to mourn. They will even pray that the mountains might fall upon them, that they might escape that terrible day of God's wrath. He will come on the glory clouds and call all to account. The only escape on that last day will be in Christ or in Jesus, as the apostle will say in this first chapter. The only escape on that day will be in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, co-equal son of God the Father. The only escape will be in Christ, whose heavenly world will continue to eternity. He's already in that heavenly world. He's inviting you into it. There's your escape from the other anti-heavenly world. For this heavenly world will endure to eternity, and that anti-heavenly world will continue in fire and brimstone to eternity. Who declares all this that we have surveyed? Who declares all this that we have summarized? Who reveals this? Whose apocalypse is this? 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, and our staccato is that all God's people said, Amen. Any questions or comments about this unit? What are the clouds? No, it's the clouds of heaven. This is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. He will come with the clouds of glory. The cloud of witnesses in Hebrews is a, a symbolic use of of a, you know, collection. Uh, Antichrist has been in the world since Jesus ascended, uh, but uh, there, there's, there is an Antichrist and there is an Antichrist, an Antichrist spirit that is a spirit of opposition to Christ, which the, the Apostle John in his first epistle describes, and that's where he says he's been, he's been here from the beginning. Uh, but there is probably a personal Antichrist from Second Thessalonians 2, where he's called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in some translations. So there is a definitive individual who will embody that spirit of Antichrist in, in a greater measure of uh, horror and opposition to the kingdom of God. And no, I don't think he's the Pope. Uh, so uh, that... <laughs> it's certainly that the Antichrist spirit is present in Rome, but it's, I don't think the the uh, I, I don't think that the confession is correct to identify him as the personal Antichrist. But there are those that still agree with that, and and and, and Ben is identifying himself as one who does, which is fine. At any rate, uh, any other questions or comments? Well, let's close in prayer. To you who are the I am, triune Lord God, and your dear Son, Alpha and Omega, and your full spirit in perfection and and completion, we adore you that you are, and you were, and you will come, and that your omnipotence governs and rules all creation for your glory. To you be glory and dominion forever. We can know, we can do no other than confess and adore you even as you revealed yourself to us in these few verses, the riches of your son's incarnation and his grace to us who are sinners by nature. We bless you for every kind gift of love and mercy that has been bestowed upon us as heirs and joint heirs of the kingdom of heaven that he has brought into the world. So do bless our lives in that relationship. Let them be lives which show forth the mirror reflection of the narrative of Christ himself and of his wonderful glory, even as we wait for his coming in power. We go now from this place praying for your hand of safety upon us and your blessing of grace within us through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns forever. Amen.